For who haven't met, my name's Chris. I'm the uh, one of the leadership team here at St. James. It's lovely to see you. If you are new, do say hi, hi afterwards. Uh, we are looking through the book of Isaiah at the moment. In fact, we've, we've got a little card. You can pick one up at the back if you haven't got one. Um, this is some weekly readings for us to take us through the whole book of Isaiah. It's designed to give us a bit of breathing space as we do it each week, but the idea is that we're trying to keep up uh, with our weekly uh, Sunday series. Do grab one of those. There's no guilt involved in missing a few days or catching up later, all those sorts of things. But the idea is that we're kind of walking together on this journey through Isaiah, which we find at a moment of incredible international tension. You know, we live in one of those moments, don't we? Who thought at the beginning of the year that I could honestly say, I've heard on the radio this week a senior military expert saying, each week the risk of nuclear weapons increases. But it's serious and it's worrying. And the good thing is the Bible was speaking into and written about times of international tension. And perhaps we can echo and resonate with some of the concerns in a way that we wouldn't do otherwise. And these chapters that we're looking at, we're going to see if we can do 7, 8, and 9 together this morning, are full of international tension. Let me, let me see if I can help it for you. We've used this diagram fairly often, but um, be familiar. There's a little sketch line that's a little piece of paper with the coastline of what we call Israel today. There's, the, there's Galilee, there's the Dead Sea, there's a big J for Jerusalem. Um, after King Solomon about 500 years before Isaiah, the bottom and the top half of the country were torn in two. There was rebellion. So we ripped the piece of paper up. We've now got two nations, two kingdoms, two monarchies. Bottom half's called Judah, top half's called Israel. That's why the Bible can be a bit confusing unless you track through exactly what it's talking about. Israel, Judah, some of the time they got along, some of the time there was war between the two. At the time of Isaiah... There was war between the two, or threats of war, and the northern kingdom, Israel, was lined up with other surrounding countries as well, putting pressure on Israel. They had tried to invade, uh, on Judah, they had tried to invade and failed. And that's what's going on at the very beginning of our section. But there's another threat as well, which is over to one side on the mainland is a big new power block, which is Assyria, with a major army, major international ambitions, and it's bearing down. And the pressures on Judah and its king are now enormous. Do you cave before the little local kingdoms like Israel and Philistia and so on, which are bearing down on you? Do you give in to them? Do you fight them and resist them? Do you join them because that way you might be able to fight off Assyria? Or do you, as King Ahaz wants to do, line up with Assyria against the little country? It's, it's enormously hard for him. But that's what's going on in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Have a look with me. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. Now the house of David was told, 
Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the winds. There is major international turbulence. What is the wise way forwards? Now, if you like politics, that's the kind of passage that really gets you excited. You, you can see the international tensions and you find it fascinating. If you like history, you will say, well, this happens in real time. Real places, real people, you, you know I like this kind of thing. But if you go down to the British Museum, you will find something called the Black Obelisk. And that has a carving of the King of Israel kneeling before the King of Assyria in tribute. This happens in real time. These are real people, real places, real things. But maybe that doesn't float your boat. Maybe your life is that you're struggling with your pressures of your job, with rising bills, with loneliness or grief or bitterness. And maps and history don't help you at all. Okay. Think about King Ahaz. Because the dilemmas that he was facing were very human. He was under huge personal pressure. He had to lead his country at a time of massive tension. And more than that, it was personal because his children, his wife, would be implicated in the decisions he made. There's a very precise pressure point for him. Will he trust God or will he trust the alliances, his cleverness, his resources? Will he trust God or will he trust the alternatives? Chapter 7, verse 9, God says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. And maybe for you, it's will you trust in God or will you trust in your career, in your success, in your abilities? Or maybe when things go badly, it's the alcohol, it's the gambling, it's the weed, it's the porn. It's the same dilemma. Will you trust others or will you trust God? If you will not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, today we're going to see how to make a wise choice under those pressures. Or, or think again about the king. He had to make complex decisions in real time with all sorts of information flowing in. Who was he supposed to trust? Any local ally? Well, they could turn into an enemy at any point. Assyria? Well, they're vast, powerful, aggressive. If you fight them, you'll be eaten for breakfast. If you make peace with them, you'll be eaten for lunch. At work, who are you going to trust? Your colleagues who smile at you in the meeting then stab you in the back with your boss? Leave you hanging in a meeting because you're the one that made the blunder? You scroll through social media, it leaves you drained and dizzy, not satisfied. And ah, chapter 8, verse 12, do not call a conspiracy. Everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you're to regard as holy. Stability. Stability in a world of confusion and conspiracy theories. Today we're going to think about how you can 
know that you're trusting in the right kind of direction. So let's dive in. Three chapters, as I say, three long chapters. Where do you begin with a thing like this? Well, if you're reading it, you will know that it's complicated. Here's my suggestion. One of the things, one of the big things that holds this section of Isaiah together is the theme of children. There are four of them who are named. And it, there's a spotlight on the issue in chapter 8, verse 18. Coming out of the blue, Isaiah says this. Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. That's the center part of our chapters, and there are these four children. And he says that these children are signs and symbols. We don't know very much about these children except their names. We're told their names. It's underlined for us each time. So I'm going to suggest, to make sense of this, we're going to look at each of these children and their names and see how they help us. Now, if you are a parent, you will know that naming your children is one of the best and worst things you can do. Because you know that at some stage you're going to have the conversation where you say, why did you name me this? I wasn't supposed to be called Chris. I was supposed to be called Simon. I don't feel like a Simon at all. When we named our youngest, Alex. We didn't know anybody called Alex. We thought it was quite an unusual name. We liked it because it was special. At every step of his education, as he points out to me, there has been at least one other Alex in his class, if not two. He's, he's now at uni. There is one other Alex Green in his college and another Alex Green in another year at the university. How do you get the name right? Names are important, aren't they? Here we go. We've got two children that are Isaiah's. Two of them are someone else's. With two of them, the names are ambiguous, deliberately, double-edged. With two of them, they're crystal clear. So, we're going to think about their names and how they work together. Here is son child number one. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field to him. Say to him, to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the sons of Remaliah. And you will see, because you've got a little footnote there, that Shear Jashub, Isaiah's child, uh, means a remnant will return. And that's a good example of what I mean by an ambiguous name. It's got two... I wonder what the king made of that. Remember, he's got aggressive armies massing on his border. On the positive side, he's being told there will be a return. Yes, his journey may involve loss and captivity and exile. It'll involve return. There will be a return. There'll be a happy ending. But it'll be a remnant who return. A few. The ones who go off to captivity and exile will be the lucky ones. 
See how Isaiah's child is a sign and a symbol? Ahaz must get ready for hard times. Say to him, verse 4, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. Christian believer, is your life going well? Is God making things good for you? He does make life go well, doesn't he? He does make life good. Thank him when he does. But that will not always happen. And if you are only a believer and you're used to only being a believer in the good times, you will stumble. We need to learn, like Ahaz from Isaiah's child, for hardship and for testing. And maybe there's someone here today who simply has come to hear this phrase from chapter 4. Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. Second child. Second child comes up a little bit later on in chapter 7, verse 10. In verses 10 to 25, there's an amazing scene where Isaiah says to the king, look, God wants to show you he's on your side. Ask him for a sign. Anything you like, you can imagine. Ask him for a sign and God will prove to you that he's on your side. And the king says, mm, no. Thank you, but no. Why? I think because, we're only given hints, but I think it goes something like this. You see, if he'd done that and God approved himself, Ahaz would have to have trusted God. Actually, as long as he doesn't do that, then God remains just a theory. And he can trust his own abilities and his own smartness. And he, he prefers diplomacy because it's a little bit safer for him than trusting God. God is not pleased with this. He says, okay, I will, I will give you a sign anyway. Verse 10 of chapter 7. Uh, verse 14, rather. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What virgin? I think the word does mean virgin rather than just a young woman. What, which virgin? Not told. Is Ahaz going to be the father? We're not told. All we know is the name. The name is Emmanuel, God with us. And we know it's going to happen very quickly, very soon. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. What does eating curds and honey mean? Well, forget that lovely yogurt and honey mixture you get when you're on holiday in Greece. That's not what's going on here. Curds is what happens when milk goes off. You know, it separates out the clear stuff and the mucky stuff. The curds is the mucky stuff. If you, if you get it right, you can then use it to make cheese and other stuff, which is delicious. But curds just mean the milk's gone off, but you're still going to drink it. You do not have fresh milk, so you're going to drink the rubbish stuff. Honey is not a luxury item. Honey is wild. You've not grown it, you've scavenged it. 
In other words, this prosperous land, which is meant to flow with milk and honey, is actually producing just sour milk and wild honey. It's a poor country. It's a lost country. This Emmanuel is going to be a king of some sort, but without a kingdom. Assyria came like a flood. Chapter 8, verse 8. It came to, verse 8, sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Its outstretched wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. This Emmanuel child is going to be a king without a land, a king without a kingdom, a king without possessions, a king without wealth. But that name, Emmanuel, raise the war cry, you nations, be shattered, listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it'll be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel, there will be defeat and loss and poverty, but God is with us. It's another ambiguous name. You mean it's got double meaning. Is it, is it just a reminder, well, God's with us? Or is it actually saying God's turned up, God is here, God is among us. This child is God with us. Now, Isaiah doesn't solve this for us. It's a bit poetic. It's a bit stretching. It's prophecy. Is this going to happen immediately or down the track? I sometimes, the best illustration I've heard of it is, is like this. When you stand back and look at, look at mountains, you see them layered up, and you can think they're quite close together. When you get in a plane and fly over the mountains, say you fly over the Alps or the Pyrenees or something, and you see them, you see they're actually stretched out over miles. It's just that from one standpoint, they look quite close together. When you stand with Isaiah, you can think that all sorts of things are going to happen really, really close together. When you stand back, though, you can say, well, Isaiah was writing 700 years before Jesus, but some of this stuff sure sounds like Jesus to me. Third child. We're back to Isaiah's family. Chapter 8. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahashalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Zechariah, uh, of Zeberechiah, as reliable witnesses for me, that I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Nahim Mahashalal Hashbaz. And you've got a footnote there. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Mahashalal Hashbaz. It's a great name, isn't it? Swift to the slaughter, swift to the spoil. I'm not a cat person. I do dogs. I'm not a cat person. But if, if I had a cat, I would call it Baz which is short for Mahershalal Hashbaz, because th this sounds to me like a cat. I didn't know we were going to get Tommy the Tiger this morning. A few years ago, uh, our family went up to London Zoo, and uh, we stood by the tiger enclosure. And if you've seen the tigers there, you know what they're doing. They're sort of lounging around doing their tigerish stuff. It's a tiger ball to play with, and bits of food gets thrown at them. Well, we were watching the tigers. 
a very foolish pigeon flew into the tiger enclosure and could not get out. Well, I have to tell you, that got the tiger's attention in a way that its freshly prepared steak did not. And we stood there as a family and had the rare privilege of watching tigers hunt and kill. That, that pigeon <laughs> did not survive the encounter. But the look in that tiger's face as it saw the pigeon and slowly moved towards it. Mahashalal Hashbaz, that's a tiger for you. And that's what the king of Assyria is going to be like. That's what he's coming. There is no ambiguity in this name. There is judgment coming on Aram and Sarai. It's inevitable. There will be no delay. There is the rumbling of the Assyrian war machine. And if God says he will act, he will act. Let's pause for a moment. How do you feel about the idea of God acting in history, on history? I mean, there's, there's some unique stuff here. Judah, King Ahaz, he is David's descendant, David's son. No nation today has the kind of special covenant status that Judah did. God has not made a covenant with the UK or with the Ukraine or with the US. You may disagree with me, Christians disagree, but I would say he has not made a covenant with the state of Israel. There is no place on the planet where he's made this kind of covenant. But then he made no covenant with the Philistines, with the Arameans, with the Assyrians, and he still moves them around like pieces on the chessboard over the centuries. God plays the long game. He is sovereign over the centuries. Do you trust him that he knows what he's doing with Putin and Biden and Boris? Do you trust him at a time of international tension? Isaiah thinks so. And he wants Ahaz to think so. And so he names his son Mahashalal. The fourth child. Fourth child comes up in chapter 9, which is a chapter of extraordinary hope. We go from gloom to a shining day. Even Galilee. Galilee is in the northern part, way up here. Um, the bit that was occupied by the Assyrians and taken, they were taken off to exile, occupied. That's why Galilee's got the nickname here in chapter 9, verse 1, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the foreigners. They're going to be safe. Chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, here's his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The exile will end. Judgment will be over. 
War will become peace. Short-term struggles will turn into eternal joy. There will be King Ahaz. There will be another king on David's throne. And God himself will be that king on David's throne. The mighty God. Remember, he's writing 700 years B.C. Now, friends, do you see how this helps us today? Do you see how we are exactly like Ahaz? We live in a time of confusing lies and stories. Who do we believe? Who do we fear? Maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe in the world. Who do you trust in politics? And the big lesson from here is this. From all four of these children with their names, God is king, or is he as he puts it in chapter 7, verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. And do not lose heart. Shut down the doom scroll on your phone. Or maybe it's coming from a place of one of these false friends. Don't, don't find an alternative to trusting God. Don't do an Ahaz and trust everything else instead of God. If you discover anything that you trust instead of God, it will devour you. Work and wealth can never satisfy. You will want more. Fantasy games and films can only last while you play them. That's, you still have to wash the dishes when you turn them off. You have to change the nappies. Even the safety, the privacy of and the fake intimacy of watching porn on your phone can let you down, as one MP discovered. It will. Chapter 8, verse 12. I don't mean that verse at all. Let's take it even further. This description of the son the child, Emmanuel. Who was that ultimately set about? Chapter 8, verse 14. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah, north and south. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Who was that said about? Said about Jesus. Who said it about Jesus? Jesus said it about Jesus. 700 years later. All the threads in these passages come together and all of them lead to Jesus. Those four names, they all point to Jesus. We read the Magnificat earlier. Turn with me, would you, as we finish, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is on page uh, 1,025. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Oh, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, Galilee in the north, to a virgin. 
pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Oh, a potential king. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, the Lord is with us. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Emmanuel. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we have seen extraordinary things in this, these passages, passages which in some ways are so alien, but they speak to us so deeply. We too live in a time of international turmoil, but even if we didn't, we'd be living in a time of spiritual bewilderment and hunger. We pray that we will be ready for hardship and for testing. We pray that we will trust your goodness and your kindness and your truthfulness at a time of ambiguity. And above all, we pray that we will trust in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, where the virgin conceived and bore a child. Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. Amen.